Well, guys, excited to continue in our series called Wrecked, walking through the book of Job. Um, I don't know what I was thinking uh, when I decided we would, we would walk through this book before, and a handful of people after the first week approached me and said, you know, nobody does this. And I'm, <laughs> each week I'm going, oh, okay, now I know <laughs> why, why people don't uh, often walk through this, this book. Because it, it is a challenge and we come at it with many um, preconceived ideas of, of what it ought to be teaching us and what it ought to answer. And as we dig into it, we actually find that it's maybe not actually out to answer the questions uh, that we think it ought to. Um, over the last few weeks... We've looked at just the first two chapters, kind of uncovered a bit of the, the, um, the beliefs in the day of, of how people looked at the gods and therefore probably uh, very much how Israel looked at Yahweh and that if you lived a certain way, you, you almost deserved or you ought to be blessed. And if you messed up, then you should be cursed. And what we'll see over the next couple weeks as we look at the philosophies and the, relig- uh, the understanding of religion from Job's friends is how the ideas of their day were really a part. Of, of the kind of idea, uh, suggestions and solutions they were trying to give to Job. All of them wrong. All of them wrong. Or all of them misguided. And we don't really hit the truth until, hey, big surprise, we hear from God in chapter 38. But it takes a bit to get there, get there and some unpacking to get there. So what has happened in the story so far is there is a man named Job. He is blessed. He is, he is blessed more than anybody. He is more righteous than anybody. And the question is posed to God, are you sure his righteousness is authentic or is it only there because when he lives that way, he gets certain things? What if you took all that stuff away? Would that, would that show an authentic righteousness or would it all fizzle away? And what we've seen in the first two chapters is Job loses his family. He loses, he doesn't lose his wife and she's got some opinions. Um, he loses, his, so you can decide whether that was a blessing. I said, whatever. <laughs> That's the ones you don't write down and you probably shouldn't have said. Um, um, uh, loses family, loses all his wealth, loses all his prestige. And still remains, as the author tells us, righteous. Does not sin in all of it. In God's eyes, he does not sin. And in the, in the, in the eyes of the author, he does not. But now we come to the very depths. And, and today is really the springboard for all the rest of the discussion that goes on in Job. He has hit rock bottom. If you turn to Job chapter 2. Verse 11. If you're new here, or just as a reminder, if you have your phone or an iPad, you can go to cachurch.info, hit sermons, and hit town center, and you'll find the notes for today's message. You can add to those. You can email them to yourselves. And this, the entire text, all the scripture we'll use this morning, is on there as well. Job chapter 2, starting at verse 11. We are going to read all the way through to the end of Job chapter 3. Um, these are the most important words you're going to hear today. This is the inspired word of God to us. So I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. If you're able, if you find it difficult, you can sit. Starting at Job chapter 2, verse 11. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Nehemathite. When they don't laugh at his name, 
When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. At last, Job spoke. And he cursed the day of his birth. He said, let the day of my birth be erased. And the night I was conceived, let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high. Let no light shine on it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own. Let a black cloud overshadow it. Let the darkness terrify it. Let that night be blotted off the calendar. Never again to be counted among the days the years, never again to appear among the months. Let that night be childless. Let it have no joy. Let those who are experts at cursing, whose cursing could, could rouse Leviathan, curse that day. Let its morning stars remain dark. Let it hope for light, but in vain. May it never see the morning light. Curse that day for failing to shut my mother's womb, for letting me be born to see all this trouble. Why wasn't I born dead? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why was I laid in my mother's lap? Why did she nurse me at her breasts? Had I died at birth, I would now be at peace. I would be asleep and at rest. I would rest with the world's kings and prime ministers whose great buildings now lie in ruins. I would rest with princes rich in gold whose palaces were filled with silver. Why wasn't I buried like a stillborn child? like a baby who never lives to see the light. For in death, the wicked cause no trouble and the weary are at rest. Even captives are at ease in death with no guards to curse them. Rich and poor are both there and the slave is free from his master. Why give light to those in misery and life to those who are bitter? They long for death and it won't come. They search for death more eagerly than for hidden treasure. They are filled with joy when they finally die and rejoice when they find the grave. Why is life given to those with no future? Those God has surrounded with difficulties. I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. What I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. I have no peace no quietness, I have no, no rest, only trouble comes. Broken and tormented, Job finds himself with little hope and little to hold on to. Let's pray. God, I, I know that many of the words of Job chapter 3 to some, they might seem harsh, and to others, they may be here this morning saying, ah, someone's put it into words. <laughs> I get that. I get it, Job. And, and, and probably none of us in here can say we've, we, we've suffered to the extent of Job. We understand the language, and we understand the disconnect and the hurt. And so, God, I pray as, as we walk through this that you would in some way, give us understanding, not so much of the reasons behind why Job may be suffered, but an understanding of you who are a present God 
even in the midst of shadow that he calls for, even in the midst of darkness. That is my prayer for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Anyone who knows my wife and I uh, well, actually doesn't even have to be that well, (laughs) knows that for approximately 20 years, we have walked with depression in our home. That there have been times of, of deep, deep darkness and sadness and calling out for answers and this, this feeling of, of, of disconnect. Um, my wife, Lelania, has, has written about it. She's blogged about it. She's, we've both been interviewed about it. You've been interviewed on a vodcast. Uh, she's even written a, a one-woman play that she directed and acted in that dealt with uh, some of the depression and hurt that she battled with. And so I asked her if she would come up this morning and just share a little bit. She told me she's just going to take the sermon, so we'll, we'll see. But just to share a little bit of what it's like to have an understanding of a, a loving, benevolent God, yet walk with that kind of disconnect. Thank you, sweetheart. Check. One. Hoping it works better for me. <laughs> Morning, everybody. I actually asked Brad <laughs> if I could get up and speak. Um, I feel very strongly, uh, as someone who's been part of the church my whole life, how important it is to know that those of us around those around us are also struggling. Uh, not just pain, not just in pain, not just with depression, anxiety, addiction, but also with doubt and fear and wondering where God is in the midst of our suffering. You are not alone. I've uh, struggled with fairly acute depression, as Brad said, for about 20 years my 20s, it manifested itself as a very serious eating disorder. When I had my children, I had terrible postpartum. With my son, it was severe apathy and depression. And with my daughter, it was heart-pounding anxiety. And all this time, I have been on medication, which often helped. Helped pull me out of the days that I was in and helped me move forward. But there was a time about six years ago when it appeared that my medication stopped working. So I have ridden these highs and these lows for over 20 years now. And to say that it has affected my faith is an understatement. I've walked through bouts of depression where I've kept my faith intact. I've lamented and poured my heart out to God. But more recently, I found myself in a depression that it seemed impossible to hang on to my faith while walking through it. I wanted so badly to just feel and hear God in my pain, but everything seemed silent. There was a point after calling out all of my searching, all of my praying, all of my tears being met with silence when my faith was gone. It was exhausted. It was non-existent. It scared me, as I had never lived my life without faith in Jesus. But in a weird way, in that moment, it also made it easier. 
It was easier to accept that my struggle was just random, wasn't part of any kind of divine plan. Instead of lamenting that God was ignoring me or being silent and not answering my prayers, it just made more sense that there must not be a God. And that's why I wasn't hearing anything. Though I walked without faith for a period of time, which was extremely painful and difficult, obviously, for both of us, I waited six months in my darkness before even sharing it with Brad. The fact was, was that I missed it. I longed for it. I longed once again just to have that connection with God, to believe in a divine purpose, an actual reason that we're here on this planet instead of everything just happening completely by chance. I wanted to believe once again that even though I was in pain and even though I saw so many of you around me suffering, that God actually did plan for us to be here and that he was still walking with us. I still struggle. <laughs> I still often lament. And I still cry out, even last night, <laughs> to hear God answer my questions and remove my fear. Just wanted to share a poem that I wrote during one of my lows where I was calling out for God's presence. God, if you are here, why in the wake of my seeking can I not find you? The cries of my heart relentlessly reverberate, demanding the passion and precision displayed in the cosmos. Yet it, it is glorious, but silent. It's a removed splendor, impossible to touch, delivered like a gift, but absent of the giver. Shall I ever know for certain the claim of the cross, the love of a savior. As a child, I hunger and thirst for meaning. Yet every unanswered question leaves me unsatisfied. Why must we wait to see your glory? For surely as my heart is faint, doubting even the origin of my own thoughts, if I could behold but a shadow of your existence, my lofty skepticism would crumble to become the very road on which you might tread softly with care to deliver a message of deliverance. You'll notice there were no, um, there was no neatly tied bow on the end of that. <laughs> we have not, um, oh, we, it, it, we continue to walk through it. As you said, even last night was a time of, of, of mourning, 
of walking through the, the, the truth or the, the, the depth of the, of the poem that she just, she just shared with you. So in walking through what, what Lelania has been walking through and as we walk through it together, there, there's been no perfect bow. But we, we're looking for bows. We love it to be nicely packaged and, and all the answers to, to, to figure out the calculation. Job doesn't get that. And, and, and the book was not meant to answer that. But what we have found, and I know Lelania would, 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 would verify this, is that to get from, from day one to now, there have to be some handles you can hold on to to get you from there to now when there's so much doubt and hurt and so much questioning. My father is in the hospital right now. Well, he's actually just moved out of the hospital, but he's been in the hospital for three months. And I was there the other day to see them, the, the nurses transfer him from his bed into his wheelchair. And to do so, I can't remember the name of the device, but he, he has to grab onto something and kind of adjust himself and move slowly to get him to where he needs to get it. It doesn't take care of his inability to walk, this device, but what it does is it gives him handles to move from one point to the next point. And I feel like, as Lelania and I have walked through this, that, that that is what scripture gives us and that's what God can promise us is those handles to be able to grab onto to get us from point A to point B and eventually to eternity as we see his kingdom revealed. Some of the things that I see in this text today and that I've seen ring true with us are the importance of three things. There's the importance of, of presence, the importance of perspective, and the importance of poverty of spirit. And I'm going to unpack each of those for you today. It's very pastoral, three Ps. Presence, perspective, and poverty of spirit. One of the first things you see in this, this text, if you look at verses 11 to 13 of chapter 2, is this, this presence of Job's friends. Now, Job's friends get a lot of bad press, right? And we'll, we'll get to that. Don't even worry. They get a lot of bad press that, that they kind of mess some things up with their bad theology, but they really are victims of, their, of the current of their, of their culture of, of the day. So we'll, we'll get to that. But at the very beginning, they seem to get it. They, they, they understand the importance of presence. You see Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildal, Bildad, sorry, Zophar, they have a cautioned, concerned approach to Job's suffering. They don't necessarily have all the info, just as they heard about it. They, they've heard that he was suffering. They get together. I don't know whether they started a Facebook page or what, but they get together. They meet up, and in verse 11, it says they came. This, this was their intent, to come, not, to, not to tell him, not to get his theology straight. They come to comfort the Hebrews literally to sigh with him. <sighs> Hebrew is such a rich language. And they came to console him, literally to wander anxiously with him. To, to figure out this journey together. Oh, can we, can we please get past the idea of individuals walking through our pain on our own? Can we please pop the lid off the box of our suffering and understand the importance of having presence, of not only offering it, but welcoming it? Verse 12 to 13 says this. Sorry, it says, when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes. They threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. 
No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Can you, I mean, that's packed. Can you imagine, you didn't just show up, you're, not, you're, you're, you're sensing the pain and the hurt, and you're not just observing from a distance, you're getting on the ground. I think I have a, a picture there, um, an, old, an old image of them sitting around Job. Utterly uncomfortable silence. Now, as a pastor, as a, as a husband, <laughs> as, you know, as a friend, we've all had those moments where there's like a minute of uncomfortable silence, right? We're like, are they going to speak? Am I going to speak? Maybe it gets a little longer and every time they, you think they're going to say, <sighs> no one says anything. Seven days. Imagine giving up seven days of your life to go and sit with someone silently in their grief, It took time for me, even as a pastor, to realize when I sit down with a mourning family that I don't have to, you don't throw them theology. You say, I'm sorry. And you sit with them. And you wait for them to speak. And that, that's the image of the, of the New Testament church. That, that ought to be the image of, of our church. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the body and how the body, if it happens to Tony, it happens to me. When he celebrates something, I need to celebrate. When Brian mourns something, I need, I need to mourn with him. That's what it means to be called the body of Christ. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. As Eleni and I have walked through this together for 20 years, and, and really earlier, but understanding it maybe a bit more, and definitely more and more as we've moved along. There have been long times of, 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 of sustained, what we would call health, and long times of, of where there's been kind of a stretch of questions and doubts of why and, and when will this be gone and things like that. There have been many times in our relationship where I have had gold. Like I've known the problem and I know how to answer it and I don't need seven days, I need like seven seconds. And I know what the problem is. Yeah, never once, never once has Elena said, you know, when you have all that truth that you can throw at me and you can tell me how I misunderstood God and how you know how to tell me how God actually is, that, what just happened? Oh, Seinfeld. Um, she never once has said, you know, that really breathes life into me. <laughs> and when you throw truth at me and my suffering, it really helps me understand how my story uh, plays into the beautiful narrative that God's writing. But what she has said many times, I said, you know what gets, one of the big things that gets me through is that you remain and you listen when I lament about the same things that are hurting me over and over and over again. Time after time, sitting in the mud and the dirt that has, has shown that that is what's been, that has apparently, thank God, shown the authenticity of, of my concern for her faith and for her well-being. After being briefly married to his wife, Joy, who, who, who succumbed to cancer, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, he said, talk to me about the truth of religion and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolation of religion or I shall suspect that you don't understand. Don't give me theology without a face. Don't give me platitudes without a presence. It seems that Job's friends get that here. Presence sometimes before words or, or definitely not in place of presence. 
They are seeking to comfort and console him. And you see throughout the book that they, they will miss the mark on a handful of things, but their motives at the beginning are evident. So that, so that actually teaches us two things can be true at the same time as we unpack Job. People can care for you, or people you care for and who care for you can still give careless advice. It's important to remember where people's motives are at. But people you care for and who care for you can still give careless advice. I think of the advice I got from my friends when I was a kid that were very limited. Right? Like, I, in, when I was nine, it made complete sense to me and my friends that we construct a ramp from three foot by four foot plywood and put it on a one foot wide brick so that if you hit it to the side, it does this. And then let's aim that towards traffic. And then let's go downhill and fly off that ramp. So I've got a shot here. You thought you were evil Knievel, but you kind of look like, it's not me, but that would have been awesome if it was. Now here's the thing. I think, I think they care about me. They're out for me having fun. I go flying down, and it wasn't until I got airborne that I realized I wasn't even aiming towards the street. I was aiming to Jamie Johnson's, the side of his house. And I abandoned my bike in the middle of flight. Now, well, and one of the things, it's not like it was a BMX. It was a bike like this. Do I have that? That's more like kind of the bike I had. The banana seat and the high rise. Handlebars. My friends had very limited wisdom to help me understand that I was not equipped for that jump like a bike with a banana seat and a high-rise handlebar with a trajectory towards a house. It was actually dangerous. They would have, if they had a larger view of things, suggested I maybe don't do that. But their view was as limited as mine. What we're going to find is that Job's friends all have a same kind of limited view that he has, and so they can't really bring the kinds of answers he's seeking. That's why perspective is so important. That when we, we try to define our lives by the snapshot we're living in rather than the movie that we're a part of. By the, the page number rather than the chapter rather than the book that we're a part of, it becomes very difficult. It's important to have perspective. And, and we see that Job, he, he, Scripture's clear, he hasn't sinned, but he starts to kind of be, his perspective, you're kind of seeing blown out here in chapter 3. These are the most tormenting words, the most anguishing questions that he's asking. And they're tormenting because they're so honest. They're identifiable, <laughs> right? We, we felt like this. Realize he never, he never suggests he's going to take it into his own hands. It's important to notice that the, he's not the one who makes these decisions. His experience in light of what he understands God to be, it just doesn't make Sense. In light of what he understands God to be all about, his experience doesn't make sense. And many Christians who, who carry the burden of suffering will say that, that this, this existential struggle of trying to balance a God of love with their experience is often a heavier burden or at least adds burden to the suffering that we walk through. And so Job says, listen, if we could somehow arrange it so that I was never born... So if you think about it, what Job is saying is, let's take the curse on me and transfer it to my family. Transfer it to my mother. Think of all the things he says. How horrible that would have been for the family. In verse 3 of, of Job 3, he said, Let the day of my birth be erased. The night I was conceived, let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high and let no light shine on it. God, I don't even want you looking at my life anymore. Let's just 
Get rid of it. Take it off the calendar. No birthdays. In verse 8, he says, I've got an idea. Let those experts who at cursing, those who could rouse Leviathan curse that day, those who have the ability, witches, black magic, those who were able to, to bring up the Leviathan, the, a mythical creature. Some scholars say it was a mythical creature that had seven heads, right? It, the, the same people who have the dark magic who can do that, get them to travel back or, or somehow make it so that I was never born. Verse 11, why wasn't I born dead? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why was I laid on my mother's lap? Why did she nurse me at her breast? Job, Job's taken his life and reduced it to his present circumstance. Which when our, our view of God is simply one of, of who ought to bless us if we don't do good and curse us if we failed. I mean, that idea makes sense then to Job. But at this point in Job's life, he wants to rewrite the past. He wants to blot it out. What if we asked Job three chapters ago? Job, what do you think about the day you were born? Blessed. I mean, I got it going on. That was a good, that's, God, was, God was looking at that time. Now I don't even want him to look anymore. But three chapters ago, my life was going pretty good. Blessed the day of my birth. I'm given riches, I'm given children and cattle and prestige. All, all was right in the universe and between me and God. But we see a hint in verse 25 here that Job had been doing what he could to make sure that a day like this would never happen. I did all the ritual. We saw that in chapter one. He was offering, offering sacrifices for his kids in case they sinned the night before. He, he really had a view of a petty God that he had to really be careful with. And here in verse 25, he's like, I did it all right and what I feared, what I've been fighting against, it's now come up on me. Verse 25, what I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. I, I did it all right. I did the rituals. I prayed. I prayed for my kids so that they would be safe. I, I, I fought back my fears by doing ritual and, and still something bad happened. I mean, I lived my life the way I was told so that I, I could be in control, but I couldn't control it. Isn't that the way many of us live our, our lives of faith? Say, well, I know if I go to church and I, I, I raise my kids this way, everything should go the way it should go. I had wealth, but I couldn't keep it. I had children, but I couldn't control whether or not I kept them. So Job, Job said, Job, I did it. <laughs> Job says, send me to a place where none of that even exists, where there's no suffering, but there's no blessing where there's no poverty, but there's also no wealth. Just send me where everything is balanced and justice. Send me to the grave. And, and you need to understand, in Job's day, he's not thinking heaven. He's just thinking cut off. Verse 14, he says, There, in that place, I would rest with the world's kings and prime ministers, whose great buildings now lie in ruins. I would rest with princes, rich in gold, whose palaces were filled with silver, Everything will be balanced. Just wipe it out. So Job's come up with these two solutions to his current circumstance. Let's get in a DeLorean, go back in time, and, and, and wipe out my birth. Let's track down my parents, make sure they never dance together at the end of the sea dance, and I will never be born. <laughs> or just take my life now. And let's be honest. Many in this room have said that. If this is what it's going to be, take my life now. Again, 
Job never goes as far to say, I'm going to take my life. He leaves that in the hands of his creator. But he sees what to him is, is the irrationality of a situation, and he considers his life pointless, like you and I often do. Wait a minute, I did, it. I did the calculation right. How come the equation isn't working? He paints himself, often like we do, into a theological corner because he believes that life should function a certain way, that God should behave a certain way if we do the right things. And we can't find reason in our circumstance. We can't find reason in God. Then we think life has lost meaning. And what Job will learn, what Job will learn is that there's a difference between finding reason for suffering and finding meaning in our suffering. There's a difference between finding reason for suffering and finding meaning in our suffering. To say, because I'm suffering, I shouldn't have been born. Or, because I'm suffering, uh, you, you better give me the reasons. I deserve the reasons. And say, if I don't get that, then this suffering is meaningless. That, that's an assumption. And it leaks into every aspect of our lives. If, if there's suffering in, in a marriage relationship, if, there is, if there's suffering in our work, our physical lives, we'll be quick to abandon whatever it is, and God as well, if we believe that suffering must be answered for or it can have no meaning. Or that struggle means God is, is pushing against us. If we have this idea of a petty God who's going to bless us sometimes and curse us if we have a bad day, please let's not have a God of good, good and bad days. <laughs> Let's have a God who's sovereign over our lives. If you asked Job about his birth two chapters ago, he would have said, right on. So glad I was born. I'm blessed. At the end of Job, if you were to ask Job, what do you think of the day of your birth now? He, again, at the end of Job, he would say, blessed. But this, this chapter in the middle, not so much. The question for, for Job, the question for the readers of Job, question for you and I is not necessarily why am I suffering, but how ought I to suffer? In light of who God is, who has revealed himself to be, how ought I to suffer? The question in the midst of suffering is not what got me here or why am I here, but where will I go from here? And I'll tell you, that is, that is not one that uh, plays out very well in our culture. To humbly say, don't even know why this is happening, but I'm going to submit to you and I'm going to continue as Job does to live a righteous life. Doesn't mean you don't ask questions. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and we're going to get into it with Job. He's, pretty, I mean, he's been pretty straightforward and he continues to be because he knows who has to answer. For you and I, it takes a humility. It takes what, what Scripture calls a poverty of spirit. To say, to say, my life is taking place in a very large narrative, a narrative where my blessing, oh, my, oh, my blessing is not the main plot line. Oh, nobody wants to hear that. That goes against everything Disney taught me. But let's be honest, that nobody wants to hear that. That the story of my life isn't even my life. The, the best story I can live is not my own story. 
That's what we see unpacked here, especially in this chapter of Job. And what I, what I think with, with Job, this chapter three, and we'll see this erupt, what this lament does, this honesty, this rawness, this poverty of spirit, is it opens up the conversation, the theological conversation of what's going on. That seven days, if he had decided he was going to do it alone, if he was going to be angry, if there was going to be no humility, no under the sovereignty of God, we wouldn't have had this explosion of this important theology that they discuss about who God is and how we ought to live, even in the middle of suffering. He has this willingness to say, I hurt this much. I hurt this much, and I want other people in on it. That's the importance of poverty of spirit. Suffering that's faced with hubris and, and pride that says, I will be justified or I will not be happy. That's suffering that's done in, in silence that will only lead to frustration and anger. We were not, you're going to get so sick of hearing, we were not meant to do life alone. Let's please model that as the church. But that takes a spirit of a, a poverty of spirit. To say, oh, I I don't do this by myself. I actually do lean on other people and get them to hold me up. Get them to pray when I can't even pray. To approach God on my behalf. We don't think of it that way, but we we, we see kingdom life modeled, even even in in the fact that Job speaks these words of duress and confusion, he's actually modeling this humility and this poverty of spirit. And when he's open about his brokenness, in Matthew 5, where, where Jesus is explaining what his kingdom ought to be like. He's giving his inaugural speech of his kingdom. Like a president does, say, this is what it'll look like. He says this. He says, these are the first words. You want to know what it's like to live in my kingdom? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't even make sense in Greek. Blessed, those who feel like they are blessed and 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 wealthy and healthy in the proper way, they will be poor in spirit. That's, that's Christ's vision of what it means to, to live in the kingdom of God. It starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's not the blessing that many of us are looking for. Job, Job knew blessing, and now he knew physical, emotional, and spiritual poverty, what he would have called curse. Jesus says poverty of spirit is actually a blessing. When your hands are empty, finally empty, so that you can grab his hands, like yada, open hands towards God. Open in worship. We don't only open our hands in submission, we're also opening because we're ready to, to receive from him. Well, we can't receive anywhere else. And that's sometimes a long journey because we were calling out to receive and it doesn't come the day we ask for it sometimes. The word for poor in spirit that Jesus uses here is the word for a beggar on the street. Blessed is the, the person who's like a beggar on the street who knows they have nothing. They have nothing and they know it. They've got nothing to offer. When I witness those, and, and many of you are, are in the room, and when I've sat with people in hospices who are walking through real suffering and poverty of spirit, 
but they cling to Christ with their open, empty hand in the midst of it. I witnessed the most Christ-like, humble, loving, self-sacrificing people who do more for the name of Christ than those who can only boast about how he's blessed them. Give me someone who's been broken and held on to Jesus over the person who says, you know, my bank account's full. (laughs) He's blessed me this way, this way, and this way. Give me a leader who limps. With their lives, they, they, they echo the words of the hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Another hymn that's been redone lately by Francis Crosby. Give me Jesus. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Take everything out of my hands. I Just fill me with more Jesus. This is a picture of my dad. Do I have a shot of my dad there? <laughs> Let's see how we get through this. <laughs> that was his uh, birthday party last Sunday at, at the hospital in the, in the Tim Hortons. They dressed him up like that. And when he walked back into, or he was wheeled back into his ward, were you telling me this? Wheeled back into his ward, all the old ladies were clapping for him and cheering for him as he came in. And he was, thank you. <laughs> if, uh, if you ever get me talking about my dad or you've been a part of this church for a while, you know that I, I, I love my dad. You'll know that I have nothing but praise for him. He wasn't perfect, but he has always, in my memory, been a humble man of prayer and a man of forgiveness and grace. I always think, I always say this to my son, Cadence. I say, my dad was up here. I'm way down here. And I'd love it if you could just get halfway back to where your grandfather is for the family name. That would be great. This past week, we went to visit my, my dad in the hospital and halfway through our visit, it was just Lelaney and I and our two kids, we decided to sing some hymns with him. And he has told us many times because of his, his difficulty, he has, he has Parkinson's, he's about 10 years in, he has difficulty getting breath to sing. And uh, we started singing and he, he went for it. He went for it and he just started weeping. And uh, we, we, he was trying to remember a song and I was thinking like 1800s and it was Keith Green from the 80s, There is a Redeemer. Jesus Christ, our Lord. We've quickly seen my dad's body. He had an operation uh, three and a half months back, three months back. And we've quickly seen more than we've seen in the past, his body and his mind deteriorate. And when I see the effects of a fallen creation on the mind and the body of my father, and as, as I weep with him, as we weep with him, as we look in his eyes, as he sings Hymns of, of praise in the hospital room. I'm reminded that he is more Christ-like because of his poverty in spirit and his humility than he could be if, he's never, if he had never suffered. I've actually seen it lived out. I've seen it tested. He's not righteous for no reason. While all of that is deteriorating, he is still clinging to Christ. He is more of a witness to me and Lelania and my kids because in the middle of his suffering, he clings to Jesus, maybe more than ever before. And, and though in his state, he is tempted to curse. I don't mean potty language, but curse the day he was born. It is his clinging to Christ that makes me want to have a faith like his. 
He is blessed. And because of that, we're, we're blessed by his poverty of spirit. So the question the book of Job ask us, asks us, one of them, is what does it mean to be blessed? Because Job had a very specific idea of what blessing looked like. And we see it change. The message of Job that we will continue to, to unwrap is that blessing is not about more stuff or our ability to hold on to the stuff that we have, whether it be relationships or whether it be wealth. Blessing is found in community that is present and sits in the dirt with you. May we be that community. May we accept community. And it comes from a, a perspective that doesn't teeter on today's experience. It, it comes from a perspective of God that, that does not change. I had a good day today, so God must be with me. Had a harder day today. I don't know where God went. That, that's, that's bigger than that. That helps us find our bearings. And it's the outcropping of the poverty of spirit where we, we live with, with open hands like, like spiritual beggars because that is what we are knowing that our fullest wealth, our fullest health will always be the blessing of knowing and being known by God. And, it's, and it doesn't come on our watch. I wish it did. It doesn't come on our agenda. For some, it will be a lifelong process of daily waking up and saying, I'm clinging to you again. Whatever that is that gets me from my bed to my wheelchair, I'm going to hold on to that and I'm going to hold on to it tight. It never fails that after my family visits with my dad, we'll, we'll ask if we can pray with him. What, what would he like us to pray about? And he'll share some of the things that are frustrating for him, some of the pain that he has. And without fail, without fail, when we open our eyes, and he's a, he's, he's a verbal, verbal prayer. He's agreeing. He's agreeing as we pray. He'll look at each of us in the eyes, and he'll have tears in his eyes. And in that, that presence of community and God, that, that sense of perspective of, of, what, of what his life has meant and that, that slow, that, that poverty of spirit, he looks at each of us and with tears in his eyes, without fail, he says, I am so blessed. Let's pray. God, even this morning, <laughs> I know that the answers that many of us would, would come to church looking for are, are, not, are not found in, in a, a simple sermon. And God, it would be my prayer that we would understand that more and more, that, that nowhere will the answer to our suffering and pain, nowhere will it be found in a podcast, a book, or a sermon on a Sunday morning, but in the, the continued walking in the community of Christ with those who are honest, who walk with poverty of spirit and say, me too. I walk with doubt. I walk with pain. I walk with grief. But let's not do it alone.
So together, let's, let's be uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that, that we can grab onto and cling to as together we gather and we remind each other of the perspective of that history is going somewhere and deliverance is coming. And we do not worship a God without scars. We worship a God who understands real suffering physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And may we find comfort in that. And may we do so humbly with the action of Yada, with, with open hands. God, for those of us here who feel like we have had our open hands, we're waiting for your presence to show up in our, in our darkness, God. I pray that you would show up. I mean, that's the cry of so many in Scripture, God. It's not new to us. We get that. The cry of Israel over and over is that you would show up in different circumstances. The cry of, of Job, the cry of, of David and other psalmists over and over was that you would show up in our circumstance. So we're not alone. That is part of the narrative of this story as we live in fallen creation and we, we wait like a woman in labor for, for birth. We wait for the arrival of your triumphant son, Jesus Christ, who will put everything right. God, may we be the kind of community who is willing to invest in each other, to, to live out the, the liturgy of, of your presence and the liturgy of a larger narrative. And may we do so with poverty of spirit. Nothing in our hands we bring, but to you and to your cross we cling.